everything feels like fighting to prove myself. My assumption is that you hear I'm queer, you hear I'm not a Christian, and you immediately jump to, well, why am I listening to this person? She has nothing to say. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to The Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. If this is your first time listening, we might not always agree, but we won't argue because our goal is to gain understanding and insight by building bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Tori Blue. Tori is a poet, writer, and creator from Nashville, Tennessee, where she lives with her wife. Tori, welcome to The Dismantle. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I am very excited for our conversation today. Thank you so much for saying yes. Yeah, happy to. So before we dive into our topic today, Tori, how did you get introduced to church, to faith? What's some of your background with (laughs) spiritual stuff? You know, a simple Um, question. Yeah, I know, especially when it's like the sort of culmination of my entire life. I am a pastor's daughter. My dad has been um, in various uh, pastoral roles since I was born. So I grew up in Chicago at uh, Willow Creek, which has uh, recently been in the throes of scandal. And I was there till I was 14, which like, honestly, obviously had I been an adult, or had a sense for what was going on behind the scenes there, it would have been a different situation. But those were probably my like best years in church for me as, as a child, the least harmful. <laughs> and, um, and then we moved when I was 14. I started leading worship still when we were back at Willow. Uh, my dad is a, he's been doing programming and uh, worship ministry and stuff for ages. Um, so it, it has just sort of always been a a part of my, not just my spiritual identity or my personal identity, but my cultural identity as well. Yeah. So, you know, it started leading worship, leading small groups. Um, we moved when I was 14, wound up in Northern Michigan, continued leading worship there, was kicked out of a church for having a conflict with the youth pastors, which is, you know... I was 17 years old and telling people, talking to the pastors and saying, you know, my friends are struggling with their mental health. I disagree with the way you're handling it. Can you please like show some compassion? And uh, was kicked out, lied about. Um, That was when I was 17. Went to Bible college after that, if you can believe it. And uh, was in a very misogynistic (laughs) uh, Bible school environment. I was one of 13 women in my school. And it was just a very, you know, Calvin-y, judgmental sort of environment. And it was really tough being women there. The women I know who I'm still in touch with from those years, I think would agree with that. So yeah, it was that. And then I wound up at a really toxic church in Los Angeles. I did some missions work with people who turned out to be super shady. But all of that being said, you know, Christianity and church life was a very, very sort of central thread for me um, through my entire upbringing. Uh, And it was, you know, there were things about it that were very positive and um, 
my parents are really, truly lovely human beings. And I think the best of, of what Christianity has to offer, but it also was a very, uh, toxic and challenging thread for me. Um, So I left the church in 2016, and I left Christianity 2017. Um, And it's just sort of been a journey of figuring out what is next for me since then. It's pretty brave of you to share. Thanks for sharing that, Tori. Yeah. Appreciate it. Now, to start us off and, and kind of on the heels of what you had just talked about, you have something on your website that I really think is just beautifully written, uh, and, and I'll quote it. You wrote, I didn't know acceptance had rules until I brought my Aaron Carter backpack to school on the first day of sixth grade. It's the first time I remember feeling embarrassed without anyone telling me to be. I bought a new backpack that afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about growing up and dealing with acceptance. You know, I I have always... Been a little bit on the uh, the fringe, I guess. And my mom has told me she's like, "You really challenged me," <laughs> in the sense that, like, my mom was very she she liked order, she liked order, she liked stability. And then I came in and was sort of dismantling that from birth. So, yeah, but I I grew up in a household where my uh, difference and uniqueness and creativity was really celebrated and protected, sometimes to the detriment of, you know, our relationships with the extended family. And like it did, it complicated things for my parents, but I am really grateful for the way that they sort of fostered a safe environment for me to become. But then, you know, you, you, you grow up and you have like, kids who say mean things about you in computer lab and make fun of your name or, you know, it's like however warm and hospitable home life is or isn't, there's always going to be someone telling you that you don't belong. And I think that that's sort of, I mean, that's a, the Aaron Carter backpack is a true story. So (laughs) it's, uh, yeah, it was just one of those times where I was like, I am, realizing that people have expectations that I'm not meeting. And that was, you know, for part of me, that was really challenging and hurtful and still is. And for part of me, just with my, you know, specific personality, it also almost eggs me on to be more who I think they don't want me to be, which can be a pro or a con, depending on the scenario. As we mentioned in your intro, you are married, correct? I am. Do you just want some background on on that? Yeah, sure. I am married to my wife, Alex. Um, she's a singer-songwriter. She's amazing. And we met back at the toxic Los Angeles church that we were in. We, we met at a um, women's retreat in the mountains, believe it or not, when both of us were still um, not just closeted, but not out to ourselves. Um, which was a huge part. And and, I mean, this sort of ties in with the last question about self-acceptance, but I spent a long time, not necessarily even in denial about my sexuality, uh, but more just, I didn't really have a need to think about it. The only time I really thought about it was when, you know, I would be on a date with some boy who I found 
tragically boring, even though like on paper, he was perfect. I was able to sort of cruise through, especially with, you know, church being my family and and my purpose and my mission for all of those years. Yeah, I just really thought I haven't found the right guy yet. And so it wasn't until a couple years into knowing Alex and we were best friends for a few years before either of us came out. But she came out to me and I all of a sudden, it almost was like I realized like there's a chance. And then all of a sudden that sort of sparked in me like, wait, what am I feeling right now? What am I experiencing right now? So two days later, after like 48 hours of like no sleep and like intense feelings about like what I was experiencing or thinking, I also came out to her. Two months later, we were an item. And then two years-ish later, we were married. Now, if you don't mind me going back to something. Sure. This isn't, this isn't the first time I've heard this this phrase, and I'd really love if you could kind of dive into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. What does it mean when you say come out to yourself? I think a lot of people have this this notion that coming out is letting your family know, letting your friends right. know about your orientation. Um, but what does it mean when you say come out to yourself? I feel like this is a common human experience, like whether wherever you fall on the on the sexuality spectrum, I think everyone will have probably something in their lives that they can relate to in this way, where there are just pieces of ourselves that we are not ready to look at, that we just sort of tuck into corners. And, you know, sometimes that's like admitting to like your addictions or admitting to yourself that you made a decision that was hurtful to someone or whatever. And then for me in a Christian background, that is how I was taught to think about sexuality. I was taught to think about sexuality as sort of one of those unspeakable, unmentionable things. So along with the other parts of my personality, my identity, um, that I was uncomfortable with, I put sexuality and my sexual orientation in a box as well and put that all on a shelf elsewhere. So for me, it was coming out to myself was a process and it was a slow process. And to be honest, um, that box was towards the back of the shelf. So I was, I was reading Brene Brown's work, um, and some of her other peers, as well for for a while, um, going to therapy, sort of opening boxes one by one, being like, it's time for me to look at this thing. It's time for me to look at that thing. And, you know, eventually it just, I got to that box and it was time for me to open it up and take a look at what was in it. And that's what coming out to myself really felt like, I guess. Now, many folks I've spoken with have mentioned the exhaustion of being queer and existing within the evangelical circle, Mm -hmm. whether that's going to church, having religious family members, friends, those sorts of things. What do you think is the underlying element of tiredness? Meaning, what is the exhaustion from? What is Mm -hmm. it connected to? I mean, I can only speak for myself. So for me, looking back on even my experience of coming out to myself, At that point, I had already sort of come to a theological understanding that was different than the one I grew up with, 
which is that I do not believe that queer love, queer relationships, queer attractions are wrong, bad, evil, misguided. I think that they are every bit as holy as any other loving relationship, Um, you know, provided that it's a loving relationship. And I had sort of unlearned my fear of my own, of, of queerness as a whole before I had to start dealing with my own fear of my own queerness. It made my, you know, coming out process, I think a lot less emotionally ravaging. And I know that the coming out process is a super empowering process for some and a super traumatic experience for others. And um, I think more often than not, a bit of both. But for me, that's not where the tension really has lied, lay, lane, line. (laughs) I have a spreadsheet on my computer that helps me with the past tense of that word. And I'm I never know which one it is. Um, anyway, I, for me, it has been the sense of feeling immediately discredited by evangelical people who would have listened to me, you know, any time leading up to the moment that I came out, would have li- listened to me, um, perceived me as thoughtful, um, seen that I actually, you know, put energy and heart and thought into the things I believe about God and about humanity and about the world. Having been a person who one day is speaking and having my thoughts and feelings valued, and the next day having those things immediately discredited because. I came out. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So, so it's not just that I have to, um, fight to exist, which is also true. Although for me, again, I had left, I had left the church at least before I came out, but I, so, so that was, that was a positive for me in, in, in a way because I didn't have the, you know, community, the rejection of my community. I didn't have the, the gossip and the rumors that I would have had otherwise. I mean, I'm sure I did back at, you know, with whoever's watching me who used to know me when I went to church. Um, I'm sure that was happening, but I wasn't involved and I don't really, it didn't bother me. The thing that bothered me is feeling like no matter what I say, because you know, I am a woman with a queer identity, you immediately perceive yourself as higher than me as someone whose thoughts couldn't possibly have any value to you because I am not, if, if I were, if I were in a relationship with God, if I had a a real true connection to God, I wouldn't be who I am. That's the thing that makes me crazy. And that makes it so hard um, to exist in, in evangelical spaces. Everything feels like, you know, fighting to prove myself as someone whose voice should be listened to at all. Yeah, that was that was sort of where my mind went. Do you experience that need and that that tension to sort of prove yourself when people do make comments such as if you weren't who you are, then you'd have a real relationship with God? Yeah, yeah, it's it's maddening. And, and, you know, and now it's, it's sort of twofold because having left Christianity, like I, 
I still experience um, my spiritual life as as very rich and um, thoughtful, and I feel deeply connected to the divine. But being queer and leaving Christianity, it feels like what's the point of even speaking to evangelical audiences? And even honestly, even saying yes to your podcast, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if people will even hear me. My assumption is that you hear I'm queer, you hear I'm not a Christian, and you immediately jump to, well, why am I listening to this person? She has nothing to say, which is possibly super unfair. And obviously, I don't, I don't know your audience personally, and we've, we're like acquaintances, new, new friends. So it could all, it's like also there's a, you know, an element of my own prejudice that goes into that, but, but it is, it's, it's prejudice based on real and often traumatizing experience. So, you know, these are all things that I have to weigh when deciding if I even have the emotional intellectual energy to have conversations in evangelical circles anymore. Now, something I think we overlook in the heterosexual sphere is the affirmation of existence. Now, in my experience, I think we treat everyone who thinks, looks, and sounds like us with human dignity and affirm their right to exist, Mm -hmm. whether consciously or not. Tori, talk to me a little bit about your experience with affirming your existence. Hmm. That is, I think, a very timely question. And one that, you know, for all of the ways that I fall into a minority group and being queer and being a woman and not uh, being Christian, I also uh, fall into a majority as well as a middle-class white woman. So I feel like I fall on both sides of, of this conversation as someone who is fighting to have my own existence affirmed, while at the same time challenging the ways that things that feel, I don't know, things that I take for granted about what it feels like to be human actually wind up feeling like I'm not affirming the existence of other, of, of people of color or of trans people, or, you know, I'm having to challenge my own experience as much as I'm asking others to challenge theirs. And I think, you know, in the political climate we're in, it's not necessarily, I don't believe that it is more important now than ever. I think it has always been important. I think people are just paying attention now. I think that there are conversations that should have been had a hundred years ago, or obviously a lot longer than that as well. But questions about the affirmation of quote unquote the other, that we just have been able to skate by ignoring until recently. So all of that being said, I am aware that unless I tell people that, unless you also fall into sort of that category with me, you may not know those things. So on the one hand, like affirming my identity, affirming my personhood, that's for me. On the other hand, it's for people who are also walking alongside me, who maybe I'm a few beats ahead of. And I'm super grateful for the people who have been a few beats ahead of me. And also it's for people who are listening to say like, oh, I didn't know that's what 
your experience was like. And again, that's like, you know, stuff I'm learning from friends of mine who fall into minority groups that I don't fall into. But I think the the thing that makes sort of that mutual connection possible is number one, empathy, the ability to listen and learn and wonder about someone else's experience, which again is, I feel like, I feel like we have to fight so hard just to convince people to be willing to empathize. And we, and then it's like, we have to walk people through step by step. What is it like to be me? And I just, I wish people would put a little more emotional energy into considering the experiences of other people because it gets really exhausting to constantly have to be doing that for ourselves just to feel like we can walk into a room and be seen as a person. I'm not even sure if I answered your question. I'm just sort of processing all of this out loud. Yeah, no, I think you did. And I think, you know, from my from my sphere of it being a heterosexual married male, Mm-hmm. to a heterosexual woman it's 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 not even on my radar that i would be affirmed as to who i am mm-hmm. because i would fit a stereotypical conservative version mm-hmm. of of marriage mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and i hate even using that term because it it then automatically puts anything else mm-hmm. as though it's as, as though it's other i should say and and i think that's even a problem with how we approach the conversation is that you are automatically starting from the other perspective and from the well do we affirm this do we do we affirm who she is do we affirm who she loves and who she doesn't yeah yeah and and you know it's it's weird being living in the south and like where my wife and i will be walking down to the park and holding hands and then we see a car coming or a person coming and we immediately feel like we don't know if our lives will be in danger if you perceive us as together. So we will not hold hands in public. So we will like act like friends in certain environments if if things feel unsafe. It's just a really, it's like all it takes is one person to think you don't belong there to change the environment into a place that feels that feels hostile at least and sometimes becomes hostile so there's there's just so much you know weighing and wondering and hoping that you're not wrong about the environment that you're in just in trying to figure out like can I walk into this coffee shop with my wife or or not yeah and I and again it's like I don't know. It's 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 such a complicated conversation because we all have places where we are privileged um and there are things that we don't have to think about. Like for me as an able-bodied person, I don't have to think about accessibility when I walk into a building in the way that some of my friends with disabilities do. Um there there are just it's just like becoming aware of the experience of others in itself. I find necessary for repairing the earth, for repairing our, our human relationships, for building bridges. And I find in myself a deep desire to build those bridges, despite the fact that it is a lot of work and sometimes thankless work 
for me because I feel like, I don't know, maybe it's naive, but I feel like when you come into relationship with someone who is unlike you and you're willing to actually listen to their experience and not assume you already know what it's like to be them, we all learn and the world becomes a little more integrated. And, and yet, you know, it's not enough to just like have friends who are different. It's like, we have to all be putting in the work. And the hard thing is when like you're operating from a place where you don't have to think about something because it doesn't affect you. It winds up being the people that it does affect who have to do all the work. Um, and that just becomes so exhausting. Now I'm guilty of this for sure. But I think the church has a potential to look at an issue like what we're discussing and lump it into just another theological issue. And I say mm -hmm. that with air quotes, mm -hmm. just another thing that we have verses to combat, just another thing that uh, we kind of lump into as a baseline of, quote, sin. Mm -hmm. uh, we almost sanction hate in the name of theology. Yep. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that, Tori? I mean, you know, coming from an evangelical background and a Bible school background, I have been there and I have been that person. And standing on the other side, I also regret that profoundly and wish that I had known better. If I had known better, I would have done better. It is complicated having a really wonderful relationship with my Christian parents who at this time are trying to make change, but employed at a non-affirming church. Because I catch wind of these conversations happening about the LGBTQ community as a whole and whether or not there's a place for us at the table of Christianity based on you know their judgments. It is the things that I have heard said are truly astounding <laughs> to me. Um, it is it is a strange thing to have my story, which is a true, like, human, beautiful, heartbreaking, and everything in between experience. Like, the same human experience that you have and that your listeners have and that my parents have, it is, it is just as human an experience. It is just as human a story to have that taken and flattened out and picked apart for a theological point to be made. It, it is wild to like take in the things that have been said about me, to me, um, pertaining to me, I don't know. I'm just I'm just over here trying to like live a life that is meaningful to me and that I feel is connected as it can be to my understanding of God or the divine, the 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 life force that breathed all of this into being and to live a life that is meaningfully connected to love and to empathy and to compassion. And also, and this has been a thing, this has been a struggle for me, you know, in my coming out and getting married and existing in a queer body that was 
raised in the church, I was totally detached from my physical self for a long time, you know, because we're told we're living on this little teeny tiny blip and that is our human life. And then everything else beyond that is eternity. And so why would we care so much about this teeny tiny little blip of life that we have now? Realizing how much that caused me to dissociate from my physical self and my physical life and my experience as a human body. And I'm moving through the world trying to reconcile all of this and trying to connect to myself and feel rooted in the world, which I have found to be an absolutely extraordinary, beautiful place. Not a place to be feared, not a place to be hated, not a place to say like, oh, it doesn't matter if we pollute and ruin everything because Jesus is coming back anyway. Like, no, this is, this is a beautiful, mystifying place we live. We flatten all of that out to make a point about God, to make a point about God based on our assumptions and our interpretations of an ancient text. And that's not to shit on the importance of, of the Bible or of the scriptures or of how we engage the scriptures. I think they're also rich and beautiful and mystifying in so many ways. But we have these ideas in our head about how things are supposed to look and we just flatten everything else out in order to make sense of our pre-made conclusions about what the world is and how it looks. And I feel like I missed out on so much of me in those years. So much of, of, I don't know, like I remember the times, the times I feel most connected to God to this day are times where I'm just outside and it's quiet and weather is happening, whatever that means at the time, wind. We've got these big trees in my backyard that are frankly terrifying. And I have to tell myself every time it storms, trust the trees. They've been there for a hundred years. They're not going to fall on you. Um, but I, I just, I have this like reverence and awe for my experience. And even back in my like most evangelical days, um, I was living in Traverse City, Michigan, and would sit by the water and would just feel the earth. And those were the times I, I felt undeniably connected to the divine. I don't know. It's just, it's fascinating to me that what we think about something and what we believe about something is given more value than how we experience life, than how we live, than how we feel or don't feel connected to meaning, connected to other people, connected to an experience that's outside of ourselves. For me as a queer woman, when we get into these conversations about, I don't know, theology, Christianity, salvation, whatever, it gets so crazy making to feel like I am living a life that feels so much richer to me now than it ever did before. And knowing that that's my experience and then sitting down with Christian friends or family and having them look me in the eye and tell me that my experience is, I'm confused about my experience because my experience counteracts or, or, um, 
there is dissonance between my experience and what they think my experience should be. What I'm saying my experience is and what they think my experience should be. And so all of that being said, to answer your question, I feel like that is what is, is constantly happening between the evangelical community as in large. There are some really wonderful, affirming, progressive evangelical communities, and I, I'm not, you know, discounting that. But the evangelical community at large and the queer community, I feel like this is our relationship. We are just being mowed over and our experiences are being denied and we are being gaslit, being told that what we think is real isn't real because you disagree. And for me, <laughs> I'm like, I think I can tell you what my experience is because I know better about what my experience is than you do. But there's just such a disrespect for experiences that fall outside of our predisposition. However we perceive the world, the things that fall outside of that we just ignore or deflate or diminish. I mean, I have such deep respect for my queer friends who are still in the church and and making shit happen because that is a tense place to be. Like for me, I just I can't. I'm I'm so I'm so tired of feeling like I'm constantly being told that no matter what I say, no matter what I experience, you still know better. It's just, it's a complicated, it's a complicated dynamic. And it is, it's hard to feel like the things that are real to me, my marriage, my love for my wife, um, my experience as a person with, with feelings and, and thoughts and a body are just sort of, I don't know, used for a theological conversation. It gets really discouraging sometimes. And Tori, as we kind of wrap up our time, what's something that you think the church, you know, I know that you no longer identify as a Christian and, you know, given the conversation that we had, no longer find yourself within that sphere. But if you could say something to the church to help it move in a positive direction, what do you think that would be? Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, I still have, it's this weird, it's this weird tension of like, yeah, I don't identify as a Christian, but I still in some way or another, consider myself a part of the global church because of how I was raised, because of of my history with Christianity, because of my relationship with evangelicalism um, historically and today and having a dad who's still a pastor. And so I I, want to be clear that like the things that I say, I say with a lot of room for nuance and gray area and grace and mercy. I don't want to come across as like, you know, a church hating gay (laughs) who like left because she was bitter and pissed. Like that is not how it feels to be me inside this conversation. And it doesn't sound like that. That's not what I'm gathering, but I appreciate the clarity. Yeah. And that's, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. But I just want to say it in case it doesn't go without being said. But with that being said, I would just ask the people who are listening, who are still a part of the church, to shelve your preconceptions about what it is like to be queer 
and particularly what it is like to be a queer person of faith, um, which I do still consider myself to be, um, to shelve that for a minute and actually listen to the experiences of LGBTQ individuals and of the LGBTQ community as a whole and to queer and trans Christians, if you sit down and and listen, I think you will start to recognize a different kind of humanity than you expect. And I think, um, you know, the, the thing you said earlier about how we sort of hand automatic dignity to people who think like us or look like us or act like us is absolutely true. And I do not think that that needs to be undone. I think that dignity that we hand to people who think and look and act like us is a good thing. Um, But I also think if it is not extending to the rest of the human family, then it's not enough. So whatever it means for, you know, you as individuals or for the church as a whole, to start extending assumptions of dignity to people who are, in your mind, other. I think that that's going to be a game changer for the conversation that we're having. I don't think we're having the same conversation right now at all. And I would love to see us on the same page so that we could actually make some progress for queer people who are just doing their best to get by and have a connection to God that feels meaningful to the individual. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And very well said. Thank you. And thanks so much for making the time to be on the show. I've really enjoyed our conversation. If people wanted to connect with you and follow you online, where could they do that? Yeah. Um, I am, uh, at notes on the way on all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can find all of that. Plus all of my poetry. It's where my online shop is where I sell my work. That's all at uh, notesontheway.com. That's awesome. We'll make sure we list it all in the show notes. But again, Tori, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you for having me. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topics we discussed today. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dismantlepod. We're on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to send us a note, send us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.